Welcome to CollegeCast for pharmacy practice news, views and updates brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Society of New Zealand. Join us to find out about tips and tools for immediate benefit to your practice and learn about current practice topics and innovations driving the future of pharmacy. Welcome to this episode on the reclassification of codeine. We know that in Australia, codeine combination products have been upscheduled to prescription only, but what's going to happen in New Zealand? Today, we have Karina Walters with us. Karina is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Auckland, where she is studying prescription and over-the-counter opioid dependence, and she's also a member of the University of Otago Centre for Addiction Research. Karina's previous role was as Senior Addictions Pharmacist at Community Alcohol and Drug Services in Auckland. She is also a part-time professional teaching fellow with the School of Population Health, teaching a postgraduate addiction paper. So Karina, welcome to this episode today. We are hearing a lot about the term opioid crisis or opioid epidemic. And I was just having a quick look on Twitter before we started. And when you put up the hashtag of opioid crisis, there's a whole lot of tweets that come up about how mm. the opioid crisis is hurting families and uh, talking about unintentional overdoses, mm. uh, how people in jail could be at a much higher risk of overdose. Um, there's people saying don't vilify opioids and um, they're looking for solutions and how to prevent deaths. And then others are talking about the stigma behind it all. So there's a lot of information out there but can you just explain what is meant by the term opioid crisis? Yeah, so I guess it's a term that uh, has evolved, well, you know, it grew out of the US and then in North American experience, and that's primarily when people say the opioid crisis, that's where they're referring to. Um, however, the main thing to understand is that the what, what occurred in the US and North America and then has occurred in, in other countries like Australia, the UK, parts of Europe, and here to a large extent has been this significant increase in prescription opioid use and that's flowed onto over the counter which we can talk about a bit. So I guess the crisis grew out of that, this, this significant increase in opioid consumption which really was driven by um, changes to uh, expectations around pain management in the late or early 1990s, I guess um, to mid 90s. So there was an expectation, there was a lot of discussion about the fact that um, pain was not necessarily being adequately managed for people and that um, and it was the adding of pain as the fifth vital sign for people to you know to, to be used and so it became this sort of focus pain became part of the focus of of all interaction or a lot of clinical interactions I guess um, and so there was also papers published in, in the US around about the same time um, stating that uh, that clinicians might be at risk of being uh, sued or have legal complications if they didn't, if they failed to address someone's pain requirements adequately. But also, there was one paper that appeared, uh, which was had looked at cases in hospital of people with opioid depend, uh, opioid use o over a certain number of time amount of time. I'm trying to think about what the time frame was now. However, this one paper suggested, and it was published in the mid 90s, or maybe earlier than that, early 90s. It suggested that people who were being prescribed opioids for pain would not develop opioid dependence. And they said that they'd looked back across, they'd done a retrospective study and they hadn't found dependence in this group. So therefore, um, opioids when prescribed for pain 
there was there was little to no risk of dependence, and so that paper has been cited hundreds of times, and I think it sort of drove it changed the culture around opioid prescribing in general. I think, and that in combination with the greater focus on pain um, management led to this exponential increase in opioid use and consumption. But the downside of that was that uh, people who started being prescribed opioids, particularly for chronic pain. Um, started to develop dependence because you know you'll get a proportion of any population who will develop dependence with opioids because they apart from anything else um, they'll cause a physiological dependence so what they saw in the US was this massive explosion in an opioid dependence for prescription opioids but also this huge increase in opioid related deaths so people more people going into emergency departments with um, near misses if you like with accidental overdoses their mortality rates went up. They actually saw, I mean, they had a lot of illicit opioid use go up as well because of the fact that when you're flooding the market, I guess, with prescription opioids, you're going to get illicit use as a side effect of that. And I think one of the major things that happened in the US that, that really raised the alarm bells and started to be described as an epidemic or a crisis was that the um, young male survival rate actually fell. So that's how big it was in the US. It was a massive impact. And then the onflow of that has been, so they started to get a handle on the, 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 the prescription opioid misuse and, and the prescription opioid overprescribing, if you like. Um, and that's started to become a bit more restricted and there's been, it's been a bit of a challenge to try and get, get ahead of it. But what's happened is they've created a, what's come in the wake of that is that essentially there's been created a, a heroin market. People whose prescription opioid supply has dried up for whatever reason, then they'll turn to heroin because they're still dependent. And heroin has become relatively cheap in the US and North America. And so the heroin um, mortality rate, you know, the overdose rate related to heroin has gone, gone up significantly as well. So really, really big changes over there. And we've seen, we've seen mirrored effects in the UK. So, you know, a fourfold increase over a 10 year period in, in the opioid prescribing rate, ours has doubled. Uh, you know, from the sort of mid, from the late 90s to the mid 2000s, Australia's had similar numbers. So there's been a significant change in opioid consumption in the Western world. Yeah. Okay. So just to make sure I've got this correct, so it was around the 1990s that we saw a major shift. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. And some so, of this was due to that study that did state that opioids wouldn't cause dependence and adding that to the fact that doctors, are, presumably this is more in the US, uh, were worried about potentially getting sued if they weren't managing people's chronic pain appropriately. That's right. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, that's a fairly fair assessment of it. And I think what happened was the culture, I guess the you know cultural practices you know, around prescribing, I guess all cultural practices take a while to change. Mm. Um, and so this changed over time. And then it was the sort of late 90s, and it was really over the decade of the 2000s to 2010 that we saw these significant increases happen in both prescribing consumption and overdose and emergency department visits and, and dependence as well. Okay. And also an, an increase um, mortality as well over that time? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we know there was an increase in number of doctors prescribing for opioids for their patients over that period and that there were increase in number of patients that then became, I guess you could say, addicted to the opioids as well. And then over time, what, in what period of time would the restrictions have started coming into place where the, the opioids 
weren't as accessible any longer or the doctors started reducing their prescribing? I think that was really around sort of, I want to say 2007, 2008. Obviously, the US um, and Canada, you know, they're states essentially, so they um, operate you know, the, the, the first, I guess, real example was the, what they called the Florida pill mills. So there, were, there was prescribing ridiculous amount. People were visiting Florida to get their big supply of opioids. Wow. And amount. So they had a whole sort of group of, of prescribers there who were, they called them pill mills. They were literally just writing out scripts for opioids um, wow. at great speed. So they clamped down on that, I think, I want to say the mid-2000s. But at a federal level, they're still grappling with it. And you'll see headlines around this. Um, you know, uh, I think Obama declared the opioid epidemic a crisis, you know, federal level two or three years ago. And then there was some headline about Trump doing, you know, they're still trying mm -hmm. to address it at a federal level. And they're certainly, they haven't got a handle on it. And the unfortunate thing is that in the wake of this kind of dependence that's been created um, is another um, major epidemic that's looming I guess or that started there um, which is really scary which is the synthetically created fentanyl analogs so they've they've been you know they're being made on the black market um, and they're being brought in through um, South America mostly into the US and they're being cut with heroin or just cut with other um, powders etc and being sold as heroin but they're obviously you know a lot more potent than heroin mm -hmm. and a lot higher risk of overdose so that's really quite scary and so their mortality rate has just continued to increase. They certainly haven't got a handle on it yet. You've talked about the synthetic fentanyl and you've also mentioned heroin as well. As I guess we're predominantly looking at, at the US and Canada. So the doctors were prescribing large amounts and you were saying that, that there was a pill mill in Florida. So when they recognised that their patients were becoming addicted to these opioids, they then realised that this was a problem after all. Yes. Reducing their prescribing. Was there a bit of a gap between just cutting people's opioid prescriptions down and having some support for them. Yeah, there's a large element of that, I think. There's also, I think, the fact that, that because, you know, and as inevitable, inevitably, if you're going to sort of have this massive opioids in the community, then there's some going to slip through to the illicit market. So, yes, it was partly the cutting people's personal prescriptions down, but it's also that the illicit, the, the stuff that was available illicitly was reducing as well, which is well. what um, led to the heroin issue. Yeah, so in terms of support, yeah, I know, well, in, in the US, they, and in the Canada especially, they've upscaled, they've, you know, hugely increased their numbers in treatment. So they have seen that as a very important way of trying to um, address the issue is to increase treatment, of course, but there's a lag between the, the realisation of it and it actually happening, as you can imagine, with bureaucracy and funding, etc. So it's undoubtedly true that people were not able to access any help when, um, when, when, when they first started restricting it. Yeah. Right. Okay, thank you. Looking at upscheduling. So in Australia, they recently upscheduled coding combination products to prescription only. What was the main driving factor behind this for Australia? For Australia, they had their addiction services um, had identified, and it was a, we'd seen the same thing here in, in New Zealand, that more and more people were being referred to them for treatment or presenting to treatment who had essentially an over-the-counter coding problem. Um, and what they were finding was that these people were often being referred via emergency departments um, because they were presenting with quite significant complications of having consumed very large doses of the combination product, either an ibuprofen product or a paracetamol product. Um, and so, you know, people were 
confronting with liver complications or um, gastric bleeds, renal failure, you know, some really quite serious um, problems associated with their the counter codeine use is case series that have been done and looked and looked at sort of what people were taking and on average they were taking around 60 to 70 tablets a day of neurofen plus for example so yes yeah, so i guess that's what led them to start looking at it and, and start wondering okay what can we do about this so really it was the drive came from um, those at the front line if you like of addiction services who were seeing these problems um, okay. as they evolved yeah and is that similar in other countries where combination products have been upscheduled as well? Yeah, so um, in the US, so the, the data I've seen there, I mean, I don't think it's been acknowledged to the same extent. I think they're much more focused on the prescription stuff. But certainly there's evidence that they've had increased um, liver failure and, um, you know, hepatotoxicity requiring hospitalisation and even transplant um, from an increased use of paracetamol and encoding um, consumption and so over a 10-year period they had a really big jump once again it's that 2000 to 2008 I think it was they had a really big jump in there people with significant hepatotoxicity related to paracetamol encoding in combination and they tracked it back to people having op opioid dependence essentially and, and taking large amounts in order to relieve the withdrawal from, for the opioid withdrawal so the unfortunate thing for people who are taking a, a combination product is that they um, you know, they start off tolerating a certain dose of codeine, but what happens in any opioid dependence is your tolerance increases with mm. time. And so you need to take bigger and bigger doses, not to get a euphoric effect, but to avoid withdrawal. So you might be taking it, you might have started taking it for headache or back pain or whatever. You're not, you're not necessarily using it recreationally, but what, you've, what people find is their dose just escalates over time the, for the longer they use it. So the opioid dependence is, is driving the increase in dose, but of course the negative effects are coming from the co-formulated agent, either paracetamol or ibuprofen. So you've told us about a lot of the, well, the reasons why Australia has looked at upscheduling the combination products and how there's a lot of benefits to that. Could there be any unintended consequences of that upscheduling, do you think? Well, I think any time you upschedule a, a product, the, the most obvious thing to be concerned about is that people with a legitimate need who don't have a problem with that product are going to not be able to access it. And I guess we had a similar issue here with pseudoephedrine. Um, you know, people who just wanted some pseudoephedrine for a cold, it's no longer available. So I, I guess that's, all, I'm sure that's what the, is always at the back of the minds of people on the medicines classification committee is how do you weigh up the, the needs of a big group versus the harms to a small group, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's the downside. Although, you know, the, what the, the Australian uh, review that they did before they made their decision looked at also at the efficacy of the combination products and they found that it was not it was not really that well established so there were some papers um, supporting its efficacy and others um, finding no no difference so this it certainly wasn't an equivocal yes it's, it's more efficacious than taking paracetamol or or ibuprofen on its own so moving to new zealand now mcc has recommended upscheduling combination products to prescription only what are your thoughts on that? And I know that in our drug addictions program that was completed recently, we did ask the pharmacist a similar question. And some of the pharmacists described the risks and benefits of this, whereas others saw predominantly just benefits of that upscheduling. What, what are your thoughts on following suit in that regard? Well, I think, you know, 
if you know if you talk to people who are working at the coalface with people that have fallen into problems with this then um they will just say that it's it's really obvious that it's that the combination product is is causing real harm for mm. people who've become dependent um in terms of upscheduling it and um, there is the thought that um you know people will just it'll just get moved to gps and then gps will be prescribing but i suspect that probably um what will happen in that case is people will be prescribed a straight codeine product or a dhc or something else instead so in terms of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing well i think you know with my addictions hat on i think and you know if you think about the new zealand national drug drug misuse policy you know guidelines around you know what what the goals that the government is trying to achieve in terms of harms from from drug misuse one of the big harm you know big approaches is harm reduction and from a purist harm reduction approach then this is certainly going to reduce the harm associated with opioid dependence um although if you don't have the backstop that they've given for people with the 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 codeine on its own then you know you could potentially create more harm if people get driven to the illicit market for example mm. um but i think overall it's probably a good decision you mentioned prescribers and that was going to be my next question to you how would upscheduling of combination codeine products impact prescribers do you think well i think certainly p- people who you know in the process in this in the process of doing the research i've been doing the people who have developed a problem over the counter are very reticent to tell prescribers that they've got an issue so i think in that respect um once access becomes a problem they will be more inclined to talk to prescribers about it so i think prescribers will inevitably see people who have got no other way of of getting codeine essentially because they're not going to be able to achieve the doses that they've been um you know people would be driving around or purchasing boxes of product from pharmacies in order to just maintain their um dependence essentially so they're not going to be able to do that when they can only purchase a two or three days supply of the of the plain code and they're going to have to go to GPs mm. so i would think there will be an impact on GPs and so i would hope there would be some um or a uh, support for pharmacists in terms of referring and helping people either directly to to go directly to an addiction service or to go to their GP or and also um some support for GPs as well mm because the GPs might have an influx of people coming through all of a sudden and yeah. So we've looked at the upscheduling of combination products. Now let's look at potential downscheduling. I've got the MedSafe Medicines Classification Committee recommendations from November of 2017. And although we know that codeine is a prescription medicine, they've also recommended that it could be a restricted medicine for oral use in adults and children over 12 years of age. and medicines containing not more than 50 mg per solid dosage unit with a maximum daily dose not exceeding 90 mg of codeine for use as an analgesic and when sold in a pack of not more than 3 days supply what are your thoughts on this potential reclassification or the recommendation for it um i think that well i was sort of pleased to see it actually because i think it what is that discussion we've just had about you know um the inevitable you know when you take away a product that there are people that will need or you know using it um safely and not being harmed by it and 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 will have a genuine need for pain relief urgently for example with a toothache or whatever and and it's after hours or you know there there's genuine need for some um more substantial pain relief than just urethrin or you know, ibuprofen or paracetamol can provide so i think it's a good thing um and i don't think it will be as i said before i don't think it will be as easily misused abused because of the restriction on the quantity um and i'm pleased to see that they've sort of 
thought about the fact that there are leg legitimate uh, consumers out there that will ne still need some access to pain relief. I guess that's where we've broken away from some of the other changes to classification internationally as well. Have you come that's across right. this type of recommendation elsewhere in your research? No, uh, it's it's um, it's the first I've seen of it actually. Um, the Australians just got, as far as I can understand, just, just removed the combination products. Um, it will remove coding from over-the-counter sale altogether, from what I can understand. So with yeah. the current recommendations, with the trends that you've seen um, through your research and through your role, I guess, as well, you know, do you have any further thoughts on, I guess, the path that we're taking? Yeah, I think that's... We have, I mean, we're obviously not on the same trajectory as North America, for example, or even Australia, but I think we run the risk of being a bit complacent because of the fact we don't have a lot of data in New Zealand. You know, so we don't actually know, for example, the extent of the problem. Um, you know, there's some data out of France, for example, that uh, surveyed people who were purchasing over-the-counter coding um, in pharmacies and community pharmacies and they found it was a small study but they found that 17 percent of those people met criteria of people purchasing codeine over the counter met criteria for dependence so the problem could be a lot bigger than we even realize um, and when you talk to pharmacists a lot of the feedback you get is well you know it's really hard to tell who's dependent and who's not um, and the this studies that have you know where they've been consumers have been interviewed who've had a problem they just say oh, well i just make sure i'm well dressed and i i know all the right things to say so i think it's very difficult to to know the size of the problem in new zealand so yeah i don't think we should be too complacent um here you know the fact that our own pres prescribing in new zealand has gone up by such a significant amount over a decade would indicate that we must have some of the similar problems that other countries have had i think i guess looking forward it's it's important for health professionals to be vigilant about the opioid problem um, and to understand that the, it's a natural consequence of increasing opioid consumption. Okay, thank you so much for your time today, Karina. It's been a pleasure to have you with us um, to discuss codeine, the, the trends that are happening internationally, the reclassifications internationally and, and what we're looking at in the next little while in New Zealand as well. So I'm sure we'll both be watching this space quite closely. Absolutely, yeah, it's great talking to you. Great, thanks very much. Thank you. Join us on our next episode where we will discuss stigma and discrimination in mental health with Claire O'Reilly. CollegeCast is brought to you by Sharina Bassan from the College Education and Training Business Unit of the Pharmaceutical Society of New Zealand. All views of our guests in these episodes are their own.